You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. take a moment to find it in your pew Bible or um, on your phone. Please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up, and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. I uh, just I realized as Caroline read that that perhaps the um, the long-running uh, TV show Touched by an Angel was um, named for that passage, um, which I don't think is probably very appropriate if you've seen that show. It's uh, nothing like what happens in that passage right there. Um, we're looking at Elijah, the story of Elijah, and then we're going to look at Elisha in a couple of weeks. 
Um, but they kind of go together. It's like 1.0, 2.0. They're very, very similar. Um, but the uh, prophet Elijah is the only one of the two that makes it onto the Mount of Transfiguration. So when Jesus uh, meets Moses and Elijah, when he's uh, being transfigured, they're the only two people from the Old Testament that are there. And Moses was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And so Elijah is like the second greatest. And then Jesus is the, is the new Moses and the new Elijah. And uh, it just shows you that um, when God's people are at their darkest hour, when Israel is running from God the hardest and has entered into almost complete paganism and Baal worship, at that, at that moment is when God sends Elijah. It's when that darkness has covered the land uh, that the light comes and shines because God is always tracking down uh, his people who are running away from him. He's always tracking us down. And um, this is the greatest explosion of signs and wonders uh, in the entire Old Testament since the Exodus. So if you read the Old Testament, there are miracles scattered throughout, but there's basically two clusters. And the first one is in Exodus, and that's the biggest because God is liberating his people from Egypt. But this is the second biggest. Uh, just a lot of miracles. There's 30 miracles that occur between Elijah and Elisha. 10 with Elijah, 20 with Elisha. And there's this concentration of miraculous supernatural activity going on at the very time. It's in northern Israel only, not in the southern kingdom, which is doing better, but in the northern kingdom. When King Ahab is the king, he's almost like a new pharaoh. So again, it just shows you that God is coming for his people who are running from him. And what God does is he sends Elijah, and the very first miracle is Elijah says it's not going to rain for three years, and it stops raining for three years. So that's a big one. And he was, God was doing that to show Israel that Baal is not going to bring you rain, that you think Baal is a storm god, you think Baal brings you fertility and life, and he's not going to do that because he's not going to bring any rain for three years, and it's just showing how impotent and dry and useless these pagan gods are. So that was the first step. The second step is he had a showdown. Elijah came to Ahab and said, I'm going to, let's have a showdown in, on Mount Carmel between Yahweh and Baal, and we'll see who can actually bring lightning. We can, we'll see who the real storm god is, the god who brings life. And so they have this showdown, and last week we saw that uh, not only did Yahweh expose Baal's emptiness, because nothing happened when Baal's prophets you know, danced around for hours and hours. But then Elijah just simply prays one little brief prayer and there's like fire from heaven comes down. So it shows that the, the God of the storm, the God who brings life is Yahweh, not Baal. So now that uh, Baal's out of the picture, the God of the Canaanites, now we can actually get the rain. And that's what happens in this passage. So I want to look at the two things that happen here. First, the hope, which is that last part of chapter 18. And I wish the Bible would have combined that section uh, with the second part, the hopelessness of Elijah, because they're all one story. It's one narrative. And I think that the person who made the chapter divisions couldn't handle the fact that uh, they seem so utterly different. The hopefulness of the rain coming, and then immediately uh, the hopefulness and the hopelessness of Elijah under the broom tree. And some, uh, where I went to seminary, uh, very skeptical professors, and they said that that the second story was inserted wrongly into that spot uh, because it's, it's so um, opposed to the first story. And there's no way psychologically it would, be, that it would be possible for Elijah to want to take his life when he has just won this great spiritual victory over Baal. So that's, that's the contrast, the, the hopefulness of the rain and then the hopelessness of the broom tree, those two things. So first of all, 
Elijah is so confident and daring. He has, he's like moxie. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's got a bit of an attitude about him. Uh, yesterday, the Wake Forest game, the, 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 the quarterback for Wake Forest did this little thing, and I'm like, whoa, he's got some spunk to him. You know, it's this little taunting kind of thing. And um, Elijah is, is so cocky that he, like, it's like when Babe Ruth was about to hit a home run, and he famously pointed his bat at the outfield to show the pitcher he was about to hit a home run, and then he hit a home run right where the bat was pointed. That's what Elijah is doing here. He's saying in verse 41, uh, I hear the sound of torrential rain. It's not just a little rain. It's like a torrent of rain. And Ahab's like, I don't hear anything, which was also at the football game yesterday. They, they, in, they, they said the game is now on hold because we have a storm that is eight miles from the stadium. And there was nothing. The sky was totally clear. So nobody thought there was anything out there. But Elijah didn't even have the weatherman to tell him there was a storm. But he knew, because of his confidence in God, that God had said it would rain. He says, do you hear the sound of torrential rain? You know, he's not, play, he's not praying like, please, please, please send the rain. And like rubbing some kind of beads. He's, he's just saying there will be rain in verse 41. I'm that confident. He's got that much hope. In verse 43, he wants his servant to also have that kind of hope. And so seven times, the perfect number, he sends the servant up to the top of Mount Carmel and says, go up there and look. It's an 1,800-foot trek. Uh, go up there and look to the Mediterranean and look for the rain coming. And the first time he goes up and there's nothing, and he goes up again and there's nothing, and again, and he goes up six times and there's nothing. And what Elijah's trying to teach the servant is to have hope. Even though it looks like there's nothing happening, to have hope that God will bring what he says. And to not trust in your eyes, but to believe what God's word says. And so on the seventh time, he goes up there, and he sees a little cloud formation that's in the shape of a hand that's way, way off. And not only does he call the servant to hope, he then calls King Ahab to hope. And he says to this uh, king who is so degenerate that he's been trying to kill the prophets, and he's been feeding uh, the prophets of Baal. So that's how far this king is from God. But, he, but God loves Ahab so much that he goes to Ahab through Elijah, and uh, he says, Ahab, I want you to take action right now as if the rain is definitely happening. And again, there's no, it's clear skies. There's no rain on the horizon. But he says to King Ahab, I want you uh, to prepare your chariot right now because there's going to be a flash flood coming. And you need to drive right back to Jezreel, which is like away from Mount Carmel, because um, I know that rain's coming. So he's calling Ahab to act as if the rain is definitely coming by driving his chariot back now to beat the rain. So that's, that's the hope that Elijah has. It's infectious. It infects his servant. It infects the king. And then this is kind of the climax of the Elijah story. Uh, you would think it would end here, that after three years of drought, there's this sudden powerful storm. And I imagine like dogs barking and uh, wind blowing uh, and you see the trees like going back and forth and the temperature's dropping. That happened yesterday. And then all of a sudden, it says in verse 45, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. And there was a great rain. And you can imagine people like dancing around and holding, you know, big buckets out and singing and laughing because they had had no rain for three years. So this is an amazing event, this revival of physical life, which was also a renewal of spiritual life. Because God says in Deuteronomy 18, I will open the storehouse 
of bounty and sin rain on the land when you repent and come back to me. It's a covenant blessing of God. That's, that's what's really going on here is God is blessing Israel because of the repentance that took place on Mount Carmel. So verse 45, uh, Ahab is thundering back to Jezreel, the capital, on his chariot. Um, God has just fed him this covenant meal on the mountain where he has brought him back into the covenant. He's restored the covenant with Ahab. And then in verse 46, we see that uh, Elijah is so full of energy that he's out, out running. Uh, he's outrunning the chariot to go tell the people in Jezreel first so that Ahab can't spin the story. He wants to tell the people, you know, straight from the horse's mouth what really happened there on Mount Carmel. And uh, if you've seen the, uh, the Incredibles, it's like Dash, you know, his, where his, he's just going so fast he can outrun a car. And who knows how Elijah in this state of weariness could have run that fast to beat Ahab's chariot. But, you know, Isaiah says that hope makes you soar on eagle's wings and it makes you run and not grow weary. So that's, uh, that should have been really where the Elijah story you would think would have ended with that reign. And it is a call to us to have hope. Certainly is. This, uh, the last verses of chapter 18, they are called to us to hope in what God has told us would happen. To, to, to hope in the life that God has promised us, the eternal life that God has out in front of us. And a lot of times uh, you have hope when you're younger. Um, you have hopes about your calling in life, what God is calling you to. Uh, you have hopes about this, uh, maybe a great church you'd be a part of. You have hopes about maybe a family you might have or some great adventure you would have with God, something amazing you would do. Maybe you're still hoping that if you're in your 40s, 50s, uh, I know when I was uh, first converted at the age of 21, I was um, much more adventurous and hopeful and kind of cocky like, uh, like Elijah was about prayer. I would let God um, be my alarm clock a lot of times for really important things I had to get to. There was one time I um, had to get to Glasgow to meet uh, my, my girlfriend. Uh, I was up in the Highlands and she was down in the Lake District and we were going to meet in Glasgow. And it was a very important meeting. I mean, it was a really big deal. And I set no, no alarm, although I could have. And I was like, God, you're going to wake me up. And I'm not going to take a bus either. I'm going to just go out on the highway and just wait and see what happens. And, uh, and sure enough, a truck came by, picked me up, took me to Glasgow. And I got there right when Margie came on a train. And I'm not suggesting that we should all hitchhike uh, or not set alarm clocks, because that's kind of childish. But there was this childlike hope that I had, and I think that a lot of y'all have experienced that, and you've lost it maybe. And it's that, uh, that, that shamelessness that Elijah has about what God has told him would happen in his life, about the, the eternal life that he believes he has, the, the new creation, the, the new heavens and new earth that are coming. He lives in that hope. And um, now we've become sadly more realistic, as we say and um, more sober-minded, more mature, we might say. Now we're adults, and we've seen through all that stuff. I love it in The, the Hobbit when Gandalf, the wizard, says to Bilbo, the, um, the Hobbit, as they're about to take this great adventure, and Bilbo doesn't want to go. Uh, and Gandalf says to Bilbo, when did napkins and dishes become so important to you? Because Bilbo doesn't want the dwarves to mess up his hobbit hole. Gandalf says, I remember a young hobbit who was always running off in search of elves and wanting nothing more than to find out what was beyond the Shire. And whenever I, whenever I read that, when I read The Hobbit or see that in the movie, uh, it just really gets me because I, it makes me remember 
when I was adventurous and wanted to go and see what was beyond the Shire. And it calls us to, um, to keep reading the adventure stories in the Bible. And if we read these stories, I think it will put us in mind of life beyond the Shire, because you see that in the Bible. You see these stories of a life that is beyond the typical life. And when you turn your eyes you know, from these screens that don't really have life in them, I mean, we think there's life here. There is not life here. I just bought YouTube TV today, and because of the football season, I just don't want to try to find life in college football or pro football. Um, we need to read the stories in the scriptures, because if we read those stories, and you can do that through sermons, through podcasts, through the Bible recap, or just actually a paper Bible, whatever helps you, but we've got to remember uh, the life that God promises. He promised rain to Israel. He promises more than rain to us. He promises us eternal life. He promises us a life where we walk with the Spirit in the garden again, and we need to recover that hope. So that's the first point, the hope in Yahweh. And Again, you would think it would end with the rain and the running, like the return of the Jedi ends with the Ewoks on planet Endor and they're dancing, and that's the way this story should have ended. It really is. But this, this is more like Oppenheimer, <laughs> which is very anticlimactic. I'm not ruining the ending there. I'll just tell you, like, halfway through that movie, you're like, this should be over right now, and it doesn't end there. This is like Oppenheimer in that there is this second part that's really kind of hopeless really, really sad. And this man who seemed like Captain America is now, you know, just like a human trying to do their best. My wife has this t-shirt somebody gave her, just a human trying to do my best. And that's, now we can actually identify with Elijah. Now he's become very human. In fact, James 5 says that Elijah was a human being just like us, with frailties just like us. And James is encouraging us that if Elijah could pray, and then rain stop, and then pray again and it come, that we could also have power. We have great power, like Elijah. But, but it's good to see in verse 42, Elijah is bowed to the ground with his face between his knees. That encourages me that when I'm like that, um, that's just what the life of a Christian is like. Like Austin was saying when he was up here, that's where a lot of us are right now, where we need relief, we need a sanctuary. He bowed with his face between his knees. Now that happened... Um, that happened in the hopeful part. So, you know, some people say that he was praying for rain, and he might have been praying for rain, but that phrase, he bowed with his face between his knees, that's the only time that posture is described in the Bible. And other commentaries say that's a posture of exhaustion. And I was like, why is he exhausted when he just beat Baal? He's just seen this major spiritual victory. So why is Elijah exhausted before the rain comes? Uh, even though he's just said, I hear the sound of rushing rain. Why is he exhausted now? And I think it's because when you fight some major spiritual battle, even if you win the battle and you come through, you're exhausted. I was reading The Fellowship of the Rings, and when Gandalf destroys, uh, when he fights off the Balrog's first attack, uh, he is exhausted, even though he, he successfully does so. He says, I'm deeply shaken, I'm nearly destroyed, I've never felt so spent. And that's the way I think that Elijah is feeling when he's just fought off uh, the prophets of Baal, and whatever dark forces are behind those prophets, he is spent. He's exhausted. And that's before the real encounter with evil. That's before he actually encounters directly uh, with this extremely evil force. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever encountered uh, something or somebody where it felt like you were actually in the presence of evil, but that can really just, it can suck your soul away. 
like a dementor. It can just pull life out of you. And it says in verse 1 that Ahab went back to Jezreel and he talked to his wife Jezebel, the queen. And you would hope that he would tell her that Yahweh destroyed Baal and that this rain came after that and that all of Israel repented and that he ate a covenant meal with God. But he doesn't say any of those things. What he says to her is that Elijah had killed the prophets, her prophets, because she was the queen of Baal. So she loved her prophets. And so all that Ahab tells Jezebel is that Elijah killed your prophets. Now, Ahab is very infuriating. We see this throughout. We'll see that in the next story as well. He is very much a chameleon. And whoever he's around, he becomes like them. So when he's with Elijah, he kind of acts like he worships Yahweh. And then he's with Jezebel. He'll start to act like he's a fan of Baal. He changes his tune no matter who he's with, which I really, I can understand. He's probably an unhealthy nine. You know, and I, an Enneagram nine and, and unhealthy moments goes to that, like extreme people pleasing. And I understand that. That's like me. And his wife is a very unhealthy eight. In fact, maybe even an evil eight. I don't think the Enneagram describes things as evil, but she is probably the most evil female character in the Bible. Uh, I would say that's pretty safe to say. Because she sends a messenger in verse 2, and notice she doesn't go in person because she's cowardly, but she sends a message, and she says to Elijah, may Baal slaughter me, literally in Hebrew, may, may Baal slaughter me if I do not slaughter you by this time tomorrow in the way that you slaughtered my prophets. So it's really gruesome. She's frightening. I was trying to think with the early bird Bible study, like who is like her? Maleficent came up uh, and the White Witch and Narnia, but those didn't even seem quite enough. So we, we landed on Cruella de Vil and um, the Dalmatians where, you know, it's the one where she's in the cartoon version where her mouth is kind of really wide and she has that really white face. And it's not Glenn Close or Emma Stone. It's the real Cruella DeVille. And she wants to take Dalmatians and make, you know, furs out of them. And she says, poison them, drown them, and smash their heads. So it was a children's movie, which I don't quite understand because that's in there. And you would think that Elijah would just call down fire on her. I always thought when I first read this, why at that point did he not just say uh, to call fire down on her? Because he seemed so brash and uh, he was so confident. But instead of calling down fire on her, in verse 3 it says, He arose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which is below Judea. He ran out of Israel and out of Judea. He's completely left the promised land. And he abandoned his servant. So it's like he read the letter, he froze, it fell from his hands, and he just took off running. He's absolutely terrified, which is, that's the psychological thing that's hard to figure out. What happened? Like, what level of evil hit him where he was that broken by it? Completely broken. And I had the same exact feeling when I watched The Lion King. When Simba and Scar have this showdown at the end, Simba is the young Lion King, and he is so much stronger than Scar. At the end of the movie, they have this showdown, and Simba could just immediately kill him, just swipe him. In the, like, I just wanted him to immediately kill Scar, because Scar is so evil. He's like Jezebel. And Scar begins to prowl around Simba uh, and to tell him lies. If you remember this scene, he starts to accuse him 
And he can tell it's having this psychological effect on Simba where he's beginning to wilt. He's like losing his strength. And Scar says, you're a murderer. Your, your dad would be still alive if it weren't for you. It's all your fault that he's dead and you're guilty. And that's the way that the evil one comes and kills your confidence and your hope. He, he knows that you're so strong. He knows that with Christ, you're stronger than him. And so he comes and he accuses you and he tears you down. And when you're spiritually exhausted, um, you are susceptible to the enemy's lies. When you're tired, like Elijah was tired, those lies go right in and right to your heart. And sure enough, Elijah says in verse 4, It is enough, Lord. Take away my life, for I have accomplished nothing. And I hope you can identify with that, even if maybe you've accomplished something very recently. How you'll feel at times where you just, you've done nothing. You'll say, you'll hear these voices that say, God hates you. He set you up. Uh, he's pulling out the rug from under you. He, he's cruel. He doesn't want you to enjoy your life. He doesn't want you to be happy. He sat down under a broom tree and wanted to die. So when he says, take away my life, that is not hyperbole. That's real. So this is one of the great passages in the Bible about someone who wants to do great self-harm to them. This is a great passage to take someone to if they're in that state. That's the state of mind that he's in. He has no hope at all. He's in total despair. All the hope is gone. Because he thought there was going to be a revival. He thought that Ahab was, had repented and that Baal would go away and the whole Israel would start worshiping Yahweh. And now he is being hunted down again. It's worse than ever. Like Jezebel's trying to kill him like immediately. And so he is completely broken. And I have a pastor friend who um, started a, a ministry called uh, Broom Tree Media. And it's for broken pastors, but it could also be for broken anybody. And he says in the bio, I am a frail, sinful man who got way over his head, became filled with anxiety, and hurted the very people, hurt the very people I cared about. I broke and descended down into dark places I had avoided all my life. And so he's trying to create a ministry for pastors like him who had been completely shattered by the ministry. And he, uh, he saw his church just implode, just fall apart. And, uh, and you don't have to be a pastor to understand that. Like I was saying earlier, a lot of you uh, at one point had thought that you're going to change the world and you had all these hopes about what's going to happen in your life and what you're going to do. And maybe you're in that stage, you know, in, in your 20s or maybe even teens where you have these great hopes about how you're going to change the world. And maybe you, you saw Yahweh winning battles, like the way he beat Baal, and you saw him answering amazing prayers. It's like I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hope was high and life worth living. And that's how you felt. But then the world just came in and just broke you. Like there was some voice, there was some darkness, and the tigers come at night with voices loud as thunder, and they tear your hopes apart, and they turn your dream to shame. And you're, it's just totally broken you. And that's, I love that the Bible says that's real. That happens. Even the, even the person on the Mount of Transfiguration had that happen to him. That is so comforting to me, that Elijah was a human being just like we are. And then even more comforting is verse 5, where it says, Behold, and it's like three exclamation points. Behold, at the very moment that he wanted to die, 
An angel touched him and said, arise and eat. You know, right when you think you failed and God has surely abandoned you, he is closer than ever. He's actually touching him. And not only does he touch him, in verse 6 says that God baked a cake on hot stones. And I thought about these pancakes at the Young Cardinal that are really, really crisp on the outside and incredibly light and fluffy on the inside, like a fresh baked, it's not just oil and flour, but it's a fresh baked cake on hot stones and a jar of cold, fresh water. God doesn't just give him like raw material. He, he gives him a home cooked meal and it's right by his head. So he doesn't even have to get up because he's so exhausted and so depressed. And sometimes as Christians, we need to just bring people food and give them, like, let them have a nap. And like prayer and, and prayer and telling them scripture is not the time. It's not the time. You just need to give someone a meal and tell them to take a nap because that's what God is doing here when Elijah just wants to die. And this is where actually in the Bible, it says that uh, God's power is made perfect when we are at our weakest. That this is where Elijah gets really powerful. He becomes most powerful in his life um, when God meets him in his desperation. He realizes that all of his strength is not his own strength, that he's always being upheld by the power of God. Because that's where you learn who God is. Because this is not just any angel. This is the angel of the Lord. In verse 7, it says, the angel of the Lord. And that is the angel that talked to Moses at the burning bush. And it's the angel that met Joshua right before Jericho. And whenever the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, you can take it to the bank. It's always the Son of God. It is the second person of the Trinity. Not yet in the flesh. Not yet come in the flesh as a baby. Not a human being yet. But it is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Son of the Father, eternally begotten, not made. And he is coming and he is happy to strengthen Elijah again. And he would have done it again and again and again, however many times Elijah needed it. And he, he feeds Elijah when he's too depressed to get out of bed. So verse 7 says, He strengthened him again, and he said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And that journey that he's taking is a journey away from God. I mean, that's where it really gets to me is when I think about Elijah is running from God. He has abandoned his post. He has left the ministry. He has overreacted in his terror. And he's trying to run as far as possible from God. At least he thinks of when he actually gets to Mount Sinai. We'll see next week. God is right there waiting. But, but it says in verse 8, he went in the strength of that food for 40 days. So that food was like Limbus food, Limbus bread in the, in the Lord of the Rings. It, it sustained him for 40 days. And it took him to Sinai. And and you say, you know, how, how is God enabling him by feeding him when he's going the wrong way? Why would God feed him when he's going away from God? And then, and then you think to yourself, because if God waited to feed you when you were going the right way, you'd be dead. You'd, you'd die of starvation. Because God loves us that much. That even when Elijah is running from him and wants nothing to do with him and has left the ministry, God still comes to him twice and he would have come a third time. Right when Elijah is in some ways betraying him, God is saying, you, you might abandon me, but I'm not going to ever abandon you. I'm going to actually feed you as you're running from me. And so that's exactly what this meal is. Uh, we believe that on the night of betrayed, and the night that uh, the human race was essentially at its very worst, 
when we not only were running from God, but we actually murdered God, uh, that on that moment, God said, this is uh, my body, the Son of God, broken for you, and this is my blood, he said, which is shed for you. And so whenever we eat the bread or drink from this cup, uh, we're proclaiming a love that is more powerful than our greatest sin, our greatest despair and hopelessness. Uh, the love comes right in the middle of those moments when we're running from God, when we're betraying God. So this is the good news. This is the gospel that we proclaim. Um, and um, when we celebrate this, we really believe that Jesus is here. We don't think it's a symbol only. It's like the stop sign I was saying. It, it, it is just normal bread. It is normal grape juice and wine. Nothing. We got it at Harris Teeter. But it is actually, there's a reality behind that where for me every week this is the this is the moment in the, in the service where I get I get really emotional and just thinking about the way this actually this is Jesus here feeding you he's feeding you really truly feeding you on his, his life he gives you strength at this table so if you don't believe that we're glad you're here we love it when people come here uh, who don't believe these things because it's 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 a sign of courage on your part sign of God's love for you, and God loves you, but if you don't believe this and you're not comfortable doing this, we don't want to pressure you to do that at all. Feel no pressure to partake. But I'm going to pray for you and uh, ask that God would bring you down if you, if you need him and want him. Father, I pray that anybody that feels like really wiped out and no love at all in their heart for you, dry as a bone, running from you, maybe abandoning their post, maybe abandoning relationships they shouldn't, um, as Elijah left his servant, and yet you, um, you touched him twice, fed him, and said, um, the journey is too great for you. And I just pray that um, you bring, bring us here who are weary and, and heavy laden and need, and need your help. And we pray in Jesus' name. Remember, we love these rascals.